Hey everyone, good morning. Welcome to Chatham Community Church once again. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm glad to get to welcome you. Uh, we've got some folks visiting us from North Chatham who are part of the choir, so if that's you, welcome. Glad to see you. Glad to see you. Uh, I'll shameless plug again, the choir is performing tonight at North Chatham, so make sure if you've not got something on your calendar, you've got something that's postponable or cancelable, uh, make your way there. It'll be a, a great time. Uh, there are also people I haven't seen in a long time or people I don't think I've ever seen. So if that's you, if this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time, glad you're here. I'll be in the back at the end of the service. I'd love to uh, say hi to you, and I'd love to make sure you got your welcome gift, especially if you're new. Or maybe you don't remember if you ever got a welcome gift, and that's okay. We won't ask you. You can have one anyway. So make sure you come by and say hi. Hey, before I get to the sermon, I uh, just want to address uh, one thing. This past week, we had another school shooting, this time in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, when these things have happened in the past, we've tried to dedicate a little bit of time in the service to acknowledge it, to just provide some words of guidance for how we respond and how we process as a community, and then spend a little bit of time praying um, in light of that. So I want to do that now. Um, when things like this happen, it's, it's disorienting. It can be hard to know uh, how to engage or whether or not to engage, particularly with the frequency with which it seems like these things are happening. So the first thing that I want to say is um, we must not grow numb. We must not grow numb to these things. I I'll be honest, it stinks to feel the pain every time these things happen. It stinks to feel sadness. It stinks to feel all the things that I feel. I wish I wasn't feeling them. I wish the things happening uh, that caused those feelings weren't happening, but they are. And we must refuse to be numb to these things. Um, it's okay to enter into the pain. In fact, it's appropriate to enter into the sadness, to enter the grief, to enter the loss, enter into whatever feelings need to come in light of these things. Um, death should make us feel that way. Violence should make us feel that way. So feel that. Feel that. Let's feel that as a community. It's a way in which even from afar we stand in solidarity with the loss that the folks in Tennessee are experiencing. Um, the second thing uh, is let's refuse to normalize these things. Um, I, th there was an, I heard a number of comments uh, in light of this tragedy, and you know, hot takes are hard to come by. It's hard to put a mic in people's face and invite them to say something, and people often say things in the heat of the moment that they wouldn't say had they thought it through. So all those caveats mentioned. It was hard to hear leaders say things like, there's nothing else we can do to prevent these tragedies. So here's my word to that, no. No. I remember a day when these things weren't normal. And there are theologies that say that we just need to be okay with the world getting worse and worse and worse because Jesus is gonna come and everything's gonna make better. You're, if, you, if you believe that, you're welcome here. I don't believe that. I believe that, yes, there is a way in which things are going to get worse, but it doesn't mean we need to acquiesce to that. That type of violence, that type of death, is contra to the kingdom of light. It is contra to the victory that Jesus has won on the cross. And I don't know what the solutions are. I don't know how to make it better, but I refuse to concede that we simply need to throw our hands up and say we just need to expect these things to happen more and more. So no, we must refuse to normalize. These things are not okay. These things are not okay. 
There, have other, there are other things that were normal. I mean, I grew up in a time when school shootings weren't normal, but my mom grew up in a time where duck and cover was normal. People would do these nuclear disaster drills at their schools because there was a very real fear that there was a chance that there would be nuclear disaster. And you know what happened? Leaders kept coming to the table until it no longer became normal to expect that. There's no reason why that can't happen here. I know it's different problems. I know the solutions are different. I know the approaches are different. But, But we didn't normalize it then. We shouldn't normalize it now. That's two. The second thing is that prayer and action go hand in hand. They must go hand in hand in these things. Some of us, um, our role is going to be primarily through prayer in light of these things, and we ought to pray. We ought to pray because the advance of evil is only stopped by the kingdom of light. Stopped by the victory that Jesus has won on the cross through his death and his resurrection. We must pray for the light to shine where there is darkness. We must intercede. And at the same time, in whatever ways we may have capacity, we may have agency, we may have authority, we may have power, we may have influence to shape or or engage or guide or influence things that might lead to these things ending, we should act. One does not cancel out the need for the other. One is not more important than the other. Both ought to coexist. We must fight the battle in the spiritual realm and walk it out in the natural realm. We will pray and we will act. And we're going to take a step towards that now. We're going to pray. So let's pray. Gracious God, you loved each and every life that was at that school that day. You loved the ones that were lost and you love the ones that remain. Lord, I pray that there would be a sense of your loving presence among the community in Nashville. I pray that there would be a sense of your comfort, a sense of your agreement that this ought not have happened, that this was not okay, that you are with them in the midst of this. Lord, I pray for the ways that this has affected some of us. I know some of us have been struck with fear in light of this. It's natural, Lord. Would you be with us? I know some of our children, Lord, have normalized these types of things. I grieve, Lord, that this has become normal, Lord. Lord, I want a world in which our kids don't need to fear that something like this might happen at their school. So, Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone in whatever way we might be in a position to engage with this issue in some way. I pray specifically for the folks in local and state government. I pray specifically for the folks who lead in schools. Lord, you know the solution. I pray that we would tear down the idols of our own opinion of the rightness of our own opinion, of the rightness of our own stance, whether it be political, moral, ethical, whatever it is, so that we could see your 
right way to bring an end to this. I pray that egos would not get in the way. I pray that stubbornness would not get in the way. I pray that nothing would get in the way of engaging in whatever it is that it's going to take to bring these things to an end. We know it's possible because you are the God of life. And you have power over death, power over violence. You have won the victory. Prince of peace, would your peace be the thing that reigns? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for uh, praying with me. I will try to keep the sermon brief. I tried to edit my notes accordingly, but I'm just going to acknowledge there's going to be an awkward shift now because I'm going to shift to the sermon, all right? So just, just, roll, just roll with me. Just roll with me. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've been enamored by a movie that came out in 1971. I wasn't born then, just as an FYI. <laughs> but I've been enamored by this movie from the moment I saw it. It's called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, now, it might have to do with the idea that there it could exist a candy factory with a room that's full of edible sweets. That might be some of why I'm uh, fascinated by that movie. But I think it also has to do with the character that Gene Wilder portrays in that movie, the character of Willy Wonka, the eccentric candy maker. Uh, Sometime after Gene passed a few years ago, I read an interview that he had given a few years before then, and he talked about the making of the film. And he talked about how as he was considering the role, he he had a sense that, that there needed to be something included in the movie that hadn't been included in the book. It was a particular scene he focused on as he was talking about this interview, and it was so important for him that this scene be included, even though it wasn't in the book, that he made it a condition for him accepting the role. He told the director, you either put this scene in the movie or I'm not going to do the movie. Here's the scene. It happens about 30 minutes into the film, and it's the first time we catch sight of Willy Wonka. He's walking out of uh, sort of the entrance of his factory into the courtyard. You can see through the gates, the, the closed gates. You can see him coming through. It's the first time he's been seen in years. He's spent years in seclusion. And as he starts walking out, you see him walking with a cane, and he looks bent down, beaten down by the years. He looks sad. He looks weary. And as he nears the gate, his cane gets caught between two cobblestones. And he doesn't seem to notice it, and he walks further ahead without the cane, kind of like those Roadrunner cartoons where the coyote passes by the edge of the cliff. And as, as soon as he realizes that the cane is no longer in his hand, he has this moment where he looks, and it's like, uh-oh. And he starts to topple forward, and you fear the worst here, but just in the moment where it seems like he's going to hit the ground, he rolls into a somersault and he leaps back up into the air, put back together all things, and the people start to cheer. The people start to celebrate. Wilder talked about how um, this scene would create an impression in the audience that Willy Wonka was not quite what he seemed and that he was hard to figure out, that just when you thought you knew who he was, something might change. And that intrigue, that curiosity, that sense of, oh, I'm not sure if he's who I think he is, would keep people engaged with the movie. 
and it would draw them to the character. I think that has proven to be true. For the last few weeks, we've been walking through the Jesus story, and each time we've seen more and more of who Jesus is, and we've gotten a clearer picture of the story he's telling. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of love. It's a story of an eternity of goodness. And and each week, though we've learned something, though we've experienced something, there's always been more. And so we've come back the next week and learned more and experienced more because the more we step into the story of Jesus, the better we know him. We never quite have him fully figured out. There's always more to get to know. We know Jesus more deeply. We know Jesus more intimately the more we step into the story. And because there's always more of his story to step into, there's always more of Jesus to know. There's always more to get to know Jesus more deeply and intimately. And that keeps us intrigued. That keeps us engaged. In today's passage, we're going to see people responding to who they perceived Jesus was. And though they've got it only partly right, they've not quite got it all figured out. But that doesn't stop them from responding. That doesn't stop them from engaging. They didn't need to have it all figured out to respond to him. So as we engage today, would you engage with a sense that even if you've been walking with Jesus for years, today there's more for you to know. May that cause you to lean in this morning to discover more of the story Jesus is inviting you into so that you might know him more deeply and intimately and step further and further into a story of redemption, love, and everlasting goodness. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 21 this morning. It's going to be on the screen in just a second, but if you have a Bible or access to a Bible, that's where we'll be. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read the first 11 verses. And I'll put it up in just a second. Here we go. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her side. By her, Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. People would come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was one of those Jewish high holy days where if you were able to, you'd make the pilgrimage to the center of religious life. And it was not uncommon as pilgrims would enter Jerusalem's gates that the people who lived in Jerusalem would be there to welcome them in, right? Hospitality is a high value in that part of the world. It was a high value to those people and at that time. And yet as one man approaches, something feels different. 
He's got people with him. He's riding in. Shouts accompany him. Things are being laid out for him and his mount to walk on. This is a bit different than everyone else who's entering into Jerusalem. It attracts attention. He must not be a pilgrim like all the others. And so the crowds in the area, the crowds in that entrance of the city, start to ask the question, who is this? Who is this? They want to know who this man riding in is. They want to know who Jesus is. They want to know what has elicited this type of response that they are hearing and seeing that they may not have heard or seen before. And as they start to catch the words that are being used, as they start to see the things that are being laid out before him, as they take in the full picture of what's happening, the question then becomes even more important. It becomes more than just pure curiosity and intrigue because the shouts, the specific words, the riding in with followers on foot going before you, the laying down of palms and cloaks, that all evokes memories for them. It all echoes how you'd welcome a conquering or victorious king back into the city. But when they take a closer look, when they take a closer look at what actually is going on, something doesn't look quite as they would expect it to be. And though this image on the screen is, is from a children's curriculum, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's adjusted appropriately for that, it feels friendly and warm, it captures this idea that this doesn't look like a conquering king, or at least not what they'd expect a conquering king to look like. So it begs the question, who is this? Who is this? Well, he is a conquering king, just not in the way that they expected He's a different kind of conquering king. Throughout the passage we read, we get a picture of how Jesus is the conquering king, how he is reframing what it means to be a king and to be a king that conquers, to be a king that wins the victory. And it starts with the way he rides in and the animal that he's on. The passage starts with Jesus sending two of his disciples to go fetch an animal for him, to procure a mount, a donkey, and a colt. And he gives them specific instructions for what they should do if someone should sort of interrupt them as they're getting that donkey or colt. I suspect he's referring to either the owners of that donkey or colt or the people who know the owners. They are to say, the Lord needs them. And that would solve things. Now, there's no indication that Jesus knows these people. There's no indication that the disciples know these people. Otherwise, we'd see a name of the people they're going to. And yet it works. And this is a way in which Jesus is a king. Kings and rulers have authority. They exercise authority. They send people in, 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 in sort of our, our common sense. They would command people to go do things. Their word carries weight. And not only does their word carries weight, but invoking the author, their authority with their name or their title would carry weight as well. People would respond because if you invoked the name or the title of the ruler, it means you were carrying with you the power that that ruler or king had entrusted you to. And to say no to you or to stand in your way was akin to standing in the way of the king or the ruler. We see Jesus' kingship in this way. We echo it 
in our prayers. We invoke Jesus' name when we pray. And when we invoke his name, when we pray, when we say we pray these things in Jesus' name, what we are doing is invoking his authority. We are saying these things can happen because the one who can make them happen has told us to pray for these things to happen. And therefore we pray in his name and with his authority. He is a king in this way. One of the things the ancient scriptures tell us about Jesus is that all authority in heaven and on earth are his. They have been given unto him. So when he sends his disciples, they go and they go with confidence, knowing that if they run into a challenge, invoking the name of Jesus would resolve it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine following someone with that degree of authority, with that degree of command, but not exercising it? But not exercising that degree of authority and command in oppressive ways? Think of the world around us, the pictures we get of people who have not that level of authority, but levels of authority that are significant degrees below that. How many of them exercise their degree of authority and command in ways that oppress, in ways that hurt? No wonder we become suspicious of authority. No wonder we become suspicious of command. And yet Jesus has all that and even more and exercises it for good, exercises it for freedom, exercises it for healing, exercises it for well-being. He does not exercise it in a harmful way. And so it begs the question, if it's possible for someone to have that much authority, that much command, that much power, and not exercise it in a harmful way, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And how might we respond to him? Now, I'll confess, it gives me pause when I read this story and I try to imagine the disciples hearing this from Jesus and going out to get the donkey and the colt because it's hard for me not to picture it, something like that happening here in Chatham County and the outcome being very different. <laughs> right? Some of you have stables and have horses, have animals, and I'm not going to ask you because I don't want you to give yourself away, but... Something tells me that if I went to, onto a farm and started to untie animals and someone came up and asked, what, what, what are you doing? And I said, the Lord needs it. I suspect that EMTs are going to be called to the scene at some point. <laughs> but something about this is different. Something about this is different. The Lord needs it, in this case, seems to work. Now, even though the disciples go possibly with confidence and things work out, it's an odd request. It's odd to be told, go get these things, and then to go and do it confidently. And though we might not get asked to do something like that, in fact, I hope none of us get asked to go get a horse at someone's house in Chatham County, because I don't think that'll go well for us. We do often get asked, if you walk with Jesus with any length of time, we do often get asked to do odd things, things that don't always make sense, things that we can't always figure out. So what does it take to go do those things with the same degree of confidence that the disciples go and do this odd request? What will help us say yes in those moments? I was reading a book recently called Managing Leadership Anxiety. 
And in that book, the author talks about a moment where his son comes home and starts to complain about the stuff that's going on in basketball. The son plays basketball, he's on a team, and he says there's this one kid who's a ball hog. For those of you who don't know what a ball hog is, that's a person that once they get the ball, they don't pass the ball. They shoot. That's all they do. He says there's one kid who's a ball hog, and so the father asks the son, well, what do you do when you see this kid being a ball hog? He says, well, when I get the ball, I don't pass to him. I don't pass to him. And so the dad takes a step back and he says, listen, son, here's what I want you to do. The next six times you get the ball, I want you to pass it to this kid. And the son is outraged. We're rewarding poor behavior. How is that going to be good? But the dad says, trust me. Trust me. And so the son, out of obedience and out of trust, does what his father tells him. And when he comes back home, he says, it worked. Now he's passing to everyone. The request didn't make sense in the moment to the kid, but it made sense to the father. What the dad has that the son didn't is a specialty in group systems and in organizational dynamics. And from what he knew, what he'd understood, what he tested, what he learned, he knew he could see a bigger picture and he knew that this was the step to take to resolve the problem. Even though the request didn't make sense to his son, he knew it was the right move. There's a similar dynamic at play here with the disciples in the Jesus story, and it's a similar dynamic for us as well. What gets us to say yes with those requests that don't make sense? Well, we can trust Jesus' invitations, even the ones that don't make sense, because Jesus can see the grander story even when we can't. And the grander story that Jesus is telling is good. It is a story with love. It is a story with peace. It is a story with righteousness. It is a story with justice. And we can't always see how the requests or prompts we are given fit into that, but they do. And you know who does see it? The one who invites us. The one who invites us to say yes. So maybe you've been struggling with an odd request from God. Maybe even in the last week you've said, I'm not sure, that feels weird, God. I don't know that I want to do that. Next time it comes, go for it. Go for it. Trust that the one who calls you is stewarding a grander story that is good, not just for you, but for the people around you, and is inviting you to participate, not as comic folly, but as a partner in crafting a story that is good for all of humanity. And go for it. Go for it. The king can see a bigger picture. He's stewarding a mission that is larger in scope, and we get to be part of it. But we don't always get to see the whole picture. The whole picture is the realm of the king, not of us. But because time and time again, Jesus demonstrates that the story is good, we can step further and further into it. Part of that bigger picture is alluded to when when the prophet is quoted, when it mentions that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. It's It's a prophecy that affirms a kingship. He is participating in a larger story that extends far beyond the first century. In fact, it starts at the creation of the world and it extends throughout all time. It's the story that has been summarized by some people with the graphic on the screen. It's a story in which this world was created and designed for good. 
In that world, humanity's relationship with each other was whole. Humanity's relationship with God was ideal. Humanity's relationship with the world was in harmony. But we know the world is not that way because the world has been damaged by evil. On an ongoing basis, we've chosen independence from God and we've severed our tie to him. And it has severed our ties to one another. And it has made dysfunctional our relationship with the world. And though we want to get back to better, we've been unable to do it on our own. And so Jesus steps into the story. And that's the part of the story that we're seeing in this passage. Jesus steps into the story, not to condemn and, and, and tear apart the world and start from scratch, but to restore the world for better. And through the giving of his life, He makes things possible to be right between us and God, us and each other, and us with the world. And then he invites us into that story to bring that healing to all the world, to the world in which we're a part of, to continually grow in our relationship with God, to continually practice healthy practices and reconciliation with the people who are around us, to continually better and better steward the opportunities we have to engage with our world. And one day, the story goes, everything will be set right. There will be no more school shootings. There will be no more illness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more hate. Everything will be right. That's the story that Jesus is participating in. He is playing a crucial role in it, the pivotal role. That's another sign that he is king, but he is most definitely a different kind of king. Though the mount he rides on has royal connotations, and if you look at scriptures or, 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 um, or documents from that time, there were times where, where, where royalty was associated with donkeys. It's certainly not the type of mount that the Roman Empire would have been riding in on. And that's the occupying force of that time. They would maybe ride in with chariots or on steeds. They were riding in as conquerors. Where they would ride in like that, he rides in on a donkey where a king might come in with an army demonstrating his power. This is a different kind of king. He comes in with a small crowd of common folk. Where, where, where the tools of conquest and battle might be visible on the kings that come in and the people who are with him, Jesus comes in with words of peace, with a different kind of power and authority. He comes in with no sword where kings would return after some show of might, vanquishing some other army in battle, counting and recounting how many had been slain. Jesus comes among stories of healing, stories of deliverance, stories of freedom, stories of of, of feeding, stories of teaching, stories of signs, stories of miracles, stories of life. He's a different kind of king. Where other kings might have come in to overthrow the Roman government, the temporal power. Jesus comes in to overthrow the cosmic enemy. He comes in to overthrow sin and death. Jesus is a different kind of king because he enters Jerusalem to willingly give his life for the sake of the world. Who is this? Who is this? This is a king that holds humility Power, majesty, love, strength, 
and so much more all together without them being in conflict with one another. This is a different kind of king. Who is this? It's not a rhetorical question. It's one all of us need to respond to for ourselves. So right now, take a moment there. What is your answer? Who is this? Who is this? Here's where this is crucial. Because how we respond to who Jesus is determines the story of our lives. It is the pivotal answer for any one of our lives. How we respond to who Jesus is determines the story of our lives. Jesus is often not quite what we expect. Sometimes we can't figure him out. But what he always is, is accessible. All power, all authority, all command. A a senior leader, if there's ever been a senior leader. And yet where we expect leaders like that to be sort of hidden uh, uh, above or under, like mounds of bureaucracy, mounds of people to go through, Jesus always remains accessible always remains approachable. I wonder if that's some of what throws us off. There's always an opportunity to draw near to this leader, to this king, to this ruler, to this savior. There's always an opportunity to step into the story, to know him more deeply and more truly. How are you going to respond today to the Jesus who enters Jerusalem as a different kind of king? The crowd gathered that. They answered the question. They answered, who is this? And they didn't get it all right. They said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. And that's true, but that's not the whole story. That's not all of it. And yet, they don't need to wait to get it all right or to figure it all out before they respond They respond to what they know in the appropriate way they ought to, if that is true about Jesus. That day, they respond with a welcome that echoes worship, that reflects that they believe that he is someone from God. They respond to what they know of who Jesus is. I heard that someone once said that to be a Christian is to give as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of Jesus. I don't doubt that if we polled the folks here, we'd have a variety of answers to who Jesus is. Most of those are fine and appropriate, I would assume. My further question is, are you responding to that Jesus appropriately? Are you responding to the Jesus that you recognize, that you acknowledge? Are you responding with as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of Jesus? Are you stepping into his story? Here's the invitation for us today. I've captured a number of the possible answers that could have been given. I'm sure there are more, but they didn't fit in the slide. (laughs) Give as much as you know of yourself to the Savior. Get as much as you know of yourself to the Messiah, if you see him that way. Give as much as you know of yourself to the Healer if that's how you're seeing him this morning. Give as much as you know of yourself to the prophet, if that's how you need him this morning. Give as much as you know of yourself to the teacher. Sit under his teaching. Adopt it, engage in it, if that's how you see him today. 
Give as much as you know of yourself to the Lord. Let's sit on that one for a second. As the one who has rule, authority, and command over all of creation, all of the cosmos, invites us to surrender all of who we are to him, to not hold back any area of our lives. So if there are areas of your life where you're resisting the voice of the Lord saying, this is the way to walk this part out, resist no longer, give that to him. Give as much of yourself as you know to the king. Give as much of yourself as you know to Jesus. Step into the story. It will change the course of your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that as I look back on my life, I can see the ways in which you welcomed my response to you, imperfect as it was, to an imperfect understanding of who you were. You welcomed it. You received it and you revealed more of yourself. Thank you, Lord, that you've always remained approachable even when I've got it wrong. Thank you, Lord, that you've revealed more of yourself at the appropriate time and invited me to respond even more. Lord, today, how do I need to respond to you? Start with me first. Start with me first. And I pray the same for my sisters and brothers here. You've got a good story for us. It's a story you've been telling for generations. We want to be part of it. We want to respond to you. Maybe it's praises. Maybe it's hosannas. Maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's surrender. Whatever it is, Lord, may we respond.